0: Welcome to the Eventful Entrepreneur. My name's Dodge. I've been an entrepreneur for over 30 years and thrown thousands of parties across the UK. And I'm also the owner of the Bournemouth Sevens Festival. Everyone who knows me knows I love people, having a laugh and asking lots of questions. So I've been chatting to people with one thing in common. They've all lived eventful lives. This week, I'm delving into the eventful life of Jamie Holm. Jamie was a soldier in the UK Special Forces and a budding pilot. One day on a routine solo flight, his engine suddenly caught fire and his plane started to lose altitude. Consumed by fire himself, Jamie kept composed and managed to free himself from the cockpit, climb onto the plane's wing and jump just before crashing. After sustaining 65% third-degree burns to his body, tissue scarring and internal injuries, he was given only 5% chance of survival. This is one of the most shocking episodes I've ever heard. If you want to hear more like this, do us a favour and subscribe, and please leave a written review if you fancy it. If you want to get in contact with me personally, you can grab me on Instagram at Dodge Woodall. I reply to every message. Here he is, the superhuman, Mr Jamie Hull. Let's get cracking. Let's go all the way back. Where did you grow up and how did you first get into the army?
1: Yeah I grew up in a small town in uh, Leighton Buzzard in Bedfordshire. The ideology to join the army was kind of always there. I was driven with or motivated with uh, challenge, adventure and, and typically as a youngster I was interested in sports. You know because I was quite physical mm. and that was what motivated me. I thought oh, possibly a career in the armed forces would be you know the way forwards but I looked at it when I was 19 but the truth is I went off backpacking around the world then and so I didn't come home for about a year and a half. Lovely. Where did you go? So this was in mid nineties, nineteen ninety five. Yep. So we're, we're screwing the clock back a little bit. Mm. And um, I went down to flew down to Johannesburg against um, sort of popular rhetoric or yeah. advice. It's a bit. It's a little bit sort of uh, especially in the nineties, style, right? yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> so Joburg and then um, I carried on. I sort of toured quite extensively around um, South Africa itself. And then I went up to um, Namibia, Botswana, Zimbabwe, Zambia, across the Angolan border. I had a massive adventure in Southern Africa. So I was in Zimbabwe when Mugabe was in in power. But I was actually offered a job from somebody that I'd met in Zimbabwe, it was at Victoria Falls, to work for him on his big outdoor markets. So I took the opportunity. So even though I went back south, went to Joburg, I then for the second time, and I was a bit running out of, Dollars yeah. at this stage I hitchhiked yeah. and that's brave and then, isn't it yeah hitchhiked hitchhiking all the way, around Africa mm, from Johannesburg all the way down to Cape Town mm. and a significant distance I forget the mileage but it's sort of five six hundred miles or yeah. something like that it's so a big old lick to get yeah. down that is that was a tremendous life experience for somebody to have quite young yeah so you can imagine you come away from that really feeling quite savvy that you've learnt a lot about the world yeah. and. You've managed to manage yourself in the process of cutting around the world, as it were. Mm. Yeah, so I was down there, Australasia, and then actually I went to New Zealand, Fiji, Hawaii, on this bigger global adventure, US, so th- across America, Lovely. Miami, Paris, London. So it was more or less a year and a half. And then I considered what was next. Again, I had thought about the forces, but I, I made an application for the local PLOD, And then, let's just say, I don't know, a year or about a year later, I was probably through the hoops to get into that mob. And I'd taken a job in the interim, so when I'd got back from my backpacking trip, as a a quality controller for a women's lingerie firm. Do you remember Gossards? (laughs) Yeah, They make the Wonderbra. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So there I was. I was quality controller. But it's not as glamorous as it sounds. I was just about to say,
0: how glamorous was that? Were you there for the photo shoots?
1: That's the thing. It's not as glamorous as it sounds because you'd expect... I can remember, I don't know, these fancy skimpy models that were come yeah. walking in, you know. But I didn't get to, it. I wasn't privy to all of that. Yeah. I just see the girls coming in and out to do the yeah. shoots. Meanwhile, I, w- I was in the back of the dusty old warehouse <laughs> and that was the quality control issue. So I was looking at all the uh, sort of raw materials for manufacture that were being delivered in the back door.
0: And then the movement from there?
1: So, yeah, with the so then I basically, as I mentioned, I, I did enrol in, in the police job yep. with Thames Valley Police. So I was basically... Uh, a sector officer in um, in Milton Keynes police area. Um, a long How time long did ago. you do that for? So, so late 90s. And I only did sort of, uh, you know, just a few short years, really, yeah. sort of probation and then some. It's days, late nights, yeah. you know, quick changeovers, you know, short days off and then you're back on. Mm. Seven days on, two days off. Mm. I felt like I was working sort of 24-7 as a result of that forward rotational shift pattern. You're on the blues and twos effectively, responding you know lights and sirens responding to 999s and basically in a nutshell i was screaming around the north of the thames valley in yeah. a patrol vehicle yeah. responding to jobs on the radio busy police areas sort of west of london very very somewhat rural mm. but they're busy towns and cities dotted yeah. around thames valley and so there's a lot of work coming in it's just nonstop, stop and, and i found the job a little bit dark mm. at, at times because you're dealing with a lot of incidents that become quite repetitive you yeah. know thefts, you know, burglaries, robberies. Mm. In my humble experience, you know, I enjoyed the job, mm. but it probably wasn't enough to draw me in and, yeah. and, and give me that sort of real incentive to want to stay with them for perhaps another 25 years. Yeah. So I considered the future and options, and I was still a relatively young man at the time, and I was thinking, oh, you know, there's got to be more to life than chasing my tail with yeah. these criminals, etc. So with that in mind, I took a sabbatical. And the reason for that was because we I on backpacking, when I did that, um, I actually volunteered for a period on the Great Barrier Reef in, in Cairns out of Queensland. Lovely. And I got a ticket as a paddy dive master, mm. like a supervisory mm-hmm. grade. And by now, a few years on, you know, in the police, et cetera, I had a little bit of cash. So I was able to fund um, myself to, to work towards getting the, uh, the paddy instructor qualification, mm. And with that ticket, if you like, you know, armed in the back pocket with that ticket, I was able to convince, if you like, the, um, the governors at uh, the police that I wanted to go and travel to do a bit of work in the dive industry yeah. with a view to perhaps uh, coming back into policing. Hmm. But as it was, um, I did do that, and I did a stint out in, um, in uh, Jamaica, I did a stint in, um, in Egypt in a couple of different locations, show Sharm el-Sheikh, Haggadah, Lovely. the Weber. Lovely. On the east coast of Sinai. I was um, doing a lot of teaching, teaching courses, teaching the, the sort of syllabus um, and many different courses from sort of basic to more advanced. But it was a, an amazing experience. So what age, what age were you here? I'm <clears throat> Still all through Still my early 20s. 20, 25?
0: Yeah, 24, 25 now. And that was it. And then when you finished your, your diving for that time, you came back to England. What was your next move?
1: I actually took myself off to university mid-20s. So I was, what? 25 when I enrolled Mm. on um, a languages degree programme. So I did um, a BA Honours in in Scandinavian Languages at uh, University of Stangler in in Norwich.
0: Scandinavian Languages?
1: So some In Norwich? Well, yeah, but bizarrely. (laughs) I think there's only like two places in the country where you could do it. I think possibly (laughs) London, or it might have been Edinburgh or something, and and, and Norwich. Um, I remember going to one of these Freshers' Fair gigs. And remember, I was a bit of an older student. So I was classed as a mature student. Yeah. You know, sort of been there, done it, worn the t-shirt a little bit, and then there was this um, this guy that was in 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 army sort of fatigues, and he's quite friendly. But he's got a big mustache, mm. classic like NCO, yeah, non commissioned officer, and he's quite friendly. He said, "How are you then, mate? How are you? How are you getting on?" And He said, "Are you interested in um in the army like that?" <laughs> and and I just looked at him, sort of looked him up and down, and he was sort of stood there with sort of arms folded, looking the part. You know, his boots were shiny and bulled, yeah, sort of shined up. And he had his tash and he looked, he looked the picture of sort of health, you know, short squat, sort of muscular guy, sort of enthusiastic about the army. And I just thought, well, he's quite a character. I'll I'll talk to him, you know, and it's the army and it's kind of linked to Cambridge University. And and it turns out that uh, UEA is kind of in the catchment area. Mm. And so they're like, they make up about 50% of the unit and they bust the guys down for drill nights and um, weekend training and et cetera, et cetera. And I got talking to this guy and he was so enthusiastic and he was sort of wagging his tail and sort of filling me in about what the army could offer me, you know, as a reservist, sort of part time that is through my time at university if I joined the the, the OTC. Mm. So I thought, you know what, it sounds interesting. I'd be keen to come along to an exposure or a drill night. So he invited me to this drill night the following week on a Wednesday evening or something and the minibus picked us up and we went down there. And there was lots of young guys and young girls, all smartly dressed. And this was the, the officer training corps, like I mentioned. And we all sort of stood there as a sort of a ragtag rag sort of, mm. uh, you know, tried to form up, you know, in some sort mm. of uh, formation. But we didn't know anything. You know, we were just all green mm. uh, with, with reference to what the army represented. And then they gave us this briefing. And they said, if you're interested in what, you know, what, what is on offer, perhaps for the three years or, f- or four years of your course, depending on what you're doing, then, you know, we're here for you. We run a selection programme like two weeks' time, yep. come down and <clears> join <throat> the selection programme. So I thought, why not? What have I got to lose? So I went along and there's about 150 people rocked up. And we did this weekend and then I got this, you know, few physical tests, a bit of medical, got the interview at the end and I got offered a, a slot to join. Mm-hmm. And um, I think they chose out of about 150, probably a few people walked away now, I'm not interested. And about 90 or 100 got, got the opportunity to join that year. And and I loved it, absolutely loved it. So I started going on regular training weekends. So the army for me, albeit as a reservist sort of on weekends, just gave me so much sort of uh, just that that individual kind of external challenge yeah. that I was looking for. I absolutely enjoyed what they had to offer, so I was learning to be a sort of a real soldier, as it were, albeit you know having this fantastic opportunity to just do it on weekends mm. whilst I was a student, and that spurred me on, mm. and I thought, you know what, this is this is this is a real life experience, and there was something about me, something innate within. Did you get the bug? Yeah. Okay. So for me, it was almost as though when they ramped up the pressure, you know, and put us in these patrol competitions or event yeah. events, I sort of somehow came alive inside and. Yeah. I kind of wanted more of it, and that kind of gave me the push in in intrinsically to want to step out of my comfort zone and mm. keep pushing. I ramped up to do the P Company, which is the parachute regiment selection process, mm. and that was absolutely um, nails, as as we say. It was really challenging. Mm. You know, they throw a lot at you. For me, the experience was very fast, very furious. Lots of short, sharp events. Yeah. You feel like you're sort of literally blowing out of every orifice of the body yeah. to kind of just keep up with the squads. Yeah.
0: What was the next step for you? Is it like, right, I'm going into
1: so I thought full about time? So I thought about that. I could have done that. Yeah. yeah, I could have sort of finished the course, sort of graduated and considered, um, you know, my role. And I had to decide whether I was going to continue in the forces because the opportunity was there through the other side, through the back end of um, Cambridge OTC the officer training corps, was to determine whether I was, you know, up for a a reserve commission or indeed, you know, regular full-time commission. And then I had, um, if you like, a recommendation from the people at OTC, so the commanding officer, especially and some of the staff, said, well, why don't you consider you've pretty much exhausted things here? Why don't you consider, um, you know, uh, sorry, a selection for UKSF, which is the UK Special Forces. I hadn't necessarily thought about that. I'd read a few books. From some of the old names like um, Andy McNabb yeah. and Chris Ryan, they'd written about various patrols yeah. uh, in Iraq and, and so forth. And you know the the interest was there, but I certainly hadn't really considered doing it myself. Uh, but when I got the recommendation, and the more they sort of bent my ear about it, I thought, well, perhaps if they believe in me, then I've got um, you know there's there's perhaps a there's there's I've got every opportunity. And the only thing that was potentially holding me back was fear, fear of the unknown, fear perhaps of failing the process or fear of, I don't know, getting binned and saying, no, sorry, we're not interested. You're not quite up to speed. But I thought the more I thought about it and with the encouragement, as I said, from various powers that Mm. be at the time and a good recommendation from the boss from my previous unit, I thought, okay, um, you know, put my best foot forwards Mm. and, and give it my best shot. So I I joined up on the process. It was, um, roughly speaking, divided into two phases, six months in the hills, or the sort of mountainous phase, again, sort of Brecon beacons, Black Mountains. And this is not secret because everybody knows that Mm. um, special forces Mm. of various descriptions from SAS to SBS to sort of SF signals and and various uh, other support kind of SF units. They're all up there cutting the mustard, doing the business um, twice a year. So they'll do a selection process, typical, typically, test week in the summer, or indeed test week in the winter. Mm. So when you start, that will be in my case, it was a year before as a reserve is coming through. Um, so I did six months, and I ended up doing starting in the winter, but coming through and doing a summer test week in uh, Brecon and Black Mountain, and then I, I I kind of surprised myself because I quite enjoyed the process, even though it is hardship. Different from P Company, which I remember, which I told you was so short and sharp, mm. and so sort of compact in nature. Um, and this was a bit slower the pace, but I, I like that mm. about it. I like the fact that you, you, they tend, you, te- sorry, they tended to test you and look at you, so scrutinise you as an individual, more or less for the first six months, mm. and you have time to learn the process and learn the, the intricate um, sort of navigational sort of prowess in the mountains and really look after yourself so Mm. really administrate yourself as a soldier um, so that you can basically carry on and on and on in the mantra of that sort of world or that that genre of soldiering you can thereby always go a little bit further Mm. and that's what it's all about Mm. and so six months of the hills and the test week finished there and then I got the chance to go on and do the phase two which was for us it was more sort of weapons and tactics or sort of strategy really it was mm. all about learning to patrol as an F as an SF soldier so f- so from there then what was your what
0: was your next move within that within the special forces
1: so I basically got um I sort of badged into the squadron as a reservist so yeah. I was with with 2-1 SAS for a few years um, with uh, with the squadron and I was basically then just um just working and doing bits and pieces so for me, I got the opportunity to travel quite far and wide, and that was always the, the driving pull. Well, it goes back to all your travelling before. You've For mentioned sure. about
0: twenty countries, which absolutely, you know, not many people can do that.
1: Yeah, I always remember what I said at the beginning. It yeah. was all about the challenge and adventure. Yeah. And if there was one unit that could give me that experience, it was this um, brilliant sort of SF unit. Brilliant. I actually, came. I had an ambition to want to learn to fly. Mm. That was sort of always there uh, in in my mind because I'd had influence from my late grandfather. He was um, very keen in the world of, a- of aviation and um, he worked as an engineer in that field for many, many years. Mm. And so I was really keen to sort of to follow in some some footsteps there and and learn about the industry and, and potentially go on to learn to fly. But rather than talk the talk, so to speak, you know, I really wanted to walk the walk. I didn't want to be one of these guys down the pub thinking, oh, that's what I want to do. And oh, yeah. I intend to do it, but never quite get round to it. Mm. Um, So I was all of the opinion that these were the years, these were the sort of formative and kind of crucial years to cram stuff in and try all bits and pieces in life. But above all, sort of, you know, follow your heart, follow your ambitions. Mm. And that was what I was all about. So like I mentioned, walk the walk with the ambition. And I went to I literally did that. I went to the U.S. Embassy in London to get a visa to learn to fly. And not easy because it was post nine eleven. Why did you
0: go to the US embassy? Well,
1: I thought about the better prospect of a thinking about a compact period of time. You know, you've got a window from, let's say, I had a six week window, and I thought, well, if I do it in the UK over the summer, there's a there's a good chance I'll get some flying done. Granted, but chances of you know bad meteorological sort of weather conditions, I'm going to get rained off, winds, weather. It might not happen. Mm. So I had a six-week window in in that particular summer. It was 2007, and I chose to walk the walk with the whole ambition. Got my visa, went to the states because of better weather prospects, and I was now in Florida. And I was flying. I was doing it. So I'm going to fast forward a month because I'd already done all the basic stuff with the instructors, got myself up to a certain level, and um, I was. Um, now pilot in command, so on my own in the aircraft, in a tiny little two-seater single-engine piston. Mm. I qualified to fly fly solo, yeah. but I'm hour building. Yeah. So I'm just a short window away from, from, from getting what I needed to achieve yeah. and then back to the UK. And then I was due to ramp up the training with the, with the regiment, the squadron, mm. and I was due to go uh, actually on a tasking out to um, the Middle East at the time. So that never quite happened, unfortunately, because of what actually um, what I was subject to that summer, and the actual incident that uh, manifested itself. So there I was flying, okay, and I give my position to the tower below. So I relay my position and talk to them and tell them where I am. Get the acknowledgement, and you have to kind of get your permissions at every stage of the flight. So rejoining the pattern, coming downwind, coming crosswind, you know, into wind, and then coming in towards your sort of final approach. In other words, for, you know, your your landing. And so I'd relayed all my positions. And on this one particular occasion, I'd rejoin that pattern from flying back from B Bravo into Aerodrome A Alpha. And um, I'd come downwind, I'd come crosswind. And as I come crosswind, I look out my left-hand canopy window. And I saw a thin streak of visible yellow-orange flame. And it was emanating from the front portion of the fuselage. And I'd looked and I'd sort of looked again, thinking, is that what I think it is? And indeed, it was a uh, flame. No sooner as I continued on my path and then made my final turn now, 90 degrees, left turning, left banking turn into wind, I, I, uh, I noted that I looked down at the footwell and the fire immediately breached the cockpit down below. So I've got my feet operating the rudder pedals down below in that footwell. And remember, I'm in a two-seater, tiny little two-seater cockpit my left hand on the control stick in between my knees, my right hand on the throttle, and I'm piloting the aircraft and the fire is breached and it's starting to build up in the footwell. And I am descending, descending. I'm looking at altimeter, which has given me an indicated altitude above ground. And I'm watching it spin down from 1,000 feet through 900 feet through 800 feet, 700. And I'm thinking about everything that's going on. The fire's starting to build up a little bit more rapidly. And I get to about 500 feet, and I won't lie to you, there was some panic and fluster going on in my mind, thinking, "Shit, shit, gotta get this aircraft down." And it was for real; it was it was an emergency. This wasn't a drill. And um, I get to about 500 feet indicated on altimeter, and the fire is now about halfway up in the chamber of the cockpit. Jesus! And I'm thinking, "My God, my God, gotta oh, get this, ar- gotta get it down, gotta get this aircraft down." And suddenly. Through the fluster of it all, I managed to kind of get a grip of the reality and sort of switch on to the moment. And I thought, I don't know if I'm going to make it. In my mind, I was thinking, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I think this fire is going to bloody well get the better of me and possibly overwhelm me in this in situ here in this cockpit. So I came up with a call it a sort of a light bulb moment or a brainwave that I wasn't going to land the aircraft in the conventional sense. I was going to do something different, something. Slightly unconventional, even irrational, mm. so I veered gently away to my left with the control stick, just tweaked the stick to my left a few degrees, and I actually headed away from it, the visual that I had with the uh the concrete runway in the distance mm. below, mm. and I headed away from that concrete runway over towards a grassy sort of stretch grassy sort of embankment I'm heading in towards that and um as I'm gliding in from 500 feet now, I remember the fire was about halfway up. I immediately, f- it sounds complex, but in reality, it was a fairly simple drill. But it was a drill all the same, something that I'd been taught by the various US instructors. And I can remember one of the US instructors said to me, and I quote, he said, um, Above all, if you've got a problem and there's an emergency, fly the damn aircraft and these these words sort of echoed and they sort of resonated and i thought for real this is an emergency this is this is it i've got to follow the drill the emergency protocol so with that i turned the key to the ignition off the red switches magnetos alpha and bravo off off the master switch off the lights off the strobes off in the center column the uh, fuel pump i flicked that to the off position there was a red switch also center column i rotate that through 90 degrees everything off, off, off in sequence, full emergency shutdown. That's all it was. And then very low level now, sort of 400 feet, 300 feet, still gliding in. I'm now judging it more by sort of eyeball. So looking forwards, looking left, looking right, trying to stay as calm and rational as I could. But all the time, sort of hand on the control stick, hand on the throttle, just sort of flicking, just reducing airspeed and sort of flaring the aircraft gently to try to scrub as much airspeed as I could, but also mindful that I didn't wish to stall and drop out. So I needed to keep the nose predominantly a tad heavy to keep the airflow through the wing and keep that glide on. But I'm gliding in, but I'm losing airspeed. And I'm gliding in fairly sort of calmly and rationally. And as I'm gliding, I'm obviously losing height, like I I say, judging it all, looking forward, looking right. And I was literally like... in a vain bid, if you will, to protect my airway from the flame ingress because it was building up in a cockpit, starting to lap my face, the flames were, and also one eye shut because I'm trying to protect my eyes from the the flame Mm. sort of against my face. So I'm (sighs) hyperventilating, trying to see where I'm going, trying to judge forwards, look left, look right, looking for hazard, looking for obstacle. I needed a clear run. So I'm gliding in gently, a couple of hundred feet. I r- take off the headset. I rip the headset off. I throw it in the opposite footwell because I was concerned about flex lead cable being yeah. in the way, being a hindrance and this, this being a problem. Yeah. So I got rid of the headset, ditched that. Comms with tower at this stage was futile. I was too low level and I was about to do what I was about to do. I managed to unbuckle the three-point harness. So carefully go for the harness, unbuckle, wriggle out of it really quickly, open the left-hand canopy door, I had to elbow it and strike it with the, the heel of my hand quickly because it was being kind of hindered by the, mm. the back pressure of wind externally, managed to elbow it, punch it open, and luckily the door popped to the vertical position a bit sort of, a uh, we say, Lamborghini style, you know, with the, the vertical yeah, opening. Yeah, yeah. And then I had a, basically I had an exit, and then, again, judging it now, sort of 50 feet, sort of just gently sort of tweaking the stick, throttle off completely, nose just a tad heavy, okay, remember just focusing on that glide, tweaking the stick, and then roughly speaking, 30 feet, 20 feet, like jack rabbit at 20 feet, thereabouts, I managed to clamber onto the seat, thinking this is it, this is my window, my exit, get onto the seat, clamber through that door aperture, get onto the left wing, and then I did as I'd been taught, not on the flight course, but during my time in training as a, as a soldier, as an operative, I did a lot of parachute training. So I got onto that wing and I leapt. I took a giant leap off the trailing edge, the back of the left wing, snapped my feet and knees together in the air, hands above my head, and I jumped uh, from the back of the left wing uh, approximately 1, 5, 15 feet in the air, approximately, and I was running in, gliding probably about 30 knots at that stage. Bloody so probably hell. about 32, 33 miles an hour. So you can imagine that height, sort of like low treetops equivalent, and at that speed, I hit the ground, luckily feet first, feet and knees together, so that was the saving grace. You know, head, neck, and spine was in good alignment, good sort of para exit position, Mm. good sort of para landing. Mm. However, too fast, too sloppy, and I, I wanted to dissipate the energy and to sort of roll out sort of para style on the ground, to sort of, you know, smooth out that energy. As, as as you know, I was taught back in the day, and I'd practiced many times, but I was too, if you like, I was coming in too fast on that jump. And uh, the reality was I landed feet first, I thrust forward, smashed my body, so I popped my collarbone. My finger went in a bit awkwardly, hyperextended this digit, which fractured against the ground. Uh, my face impacted the ground almost immediately as I thrust forward with the secondary impact. Yeah. So face butted the ground, soft ground because of recent torrential rainfall, which helped with the compression of the jump. But sharp Florida razor grass, because it's the tropics. Mm. You know the golf courses yeah. out there in Florida, yeah, yeah, the yeah. grass is not fine like mm. it is here. And the soft ground, if you like, took some of the impact, but the sharp grass, so basically multiple soft tissue lacerations through the right side of the nose, in particular through the crease here, they call it the alar, through the nose, through the lip. I had a bilateral nasal fracture, superorbital eye socket fractures from that secondary impact. In the action of the jump, the force coming through my body, through my torso, on contact with the ground, caused me to inadvertently rupture the colon, large intestine, lacerate one flank of my liver internally, which was bleeding and hemorrhaging. And that is not the worst of it. For the record... I was 63% third and fourth degree burns in in the, um, the aftermath of what had happened ef- effectively in the cockpit. And in those split seconds when, it, before I, when I got on the wing, just before I jumped, I was getting the backwash of the propeller. So it was fanning me mm. with the backwash. And I got this, that's why I've got this right side dominant burn yeah. from the backwash of the prop in those split seconds just before I jumped off the wing. So I got uber fanned all the way down the right side, which was the worst of the burn. My lower limbs specifically were very aggressively burned. And that was the fourth degree burn. And that is because there was exposed bone on the shin. And the shins were indeed sort of open and exposed because the burn was so deep. Because they had faced the longest period of the burn down below on the shins in the footwell. So all in all, I was a massive trauma for the record with the internal injuries, the facial fractures, you know, I had a, um, like I said, the collarbone, the, the finger, um, and the 63% third and fourth degree burns, that was a life changer. Mm. So in that moment, it took 45 seconds, that's all it was. In that moment of being burned in the cockpit and the lower limbs taking the worst of it, my life as I knew it, as a, if you like, as a formerly operational soldier and a badge member of sort of UKSF, gone gone forever, gone for good. I was never going to be, and it's not a sob story as such, but I was never going to be that same sort of athlete and that same, you know, operational, you know, soldier. It just wasn't going to happen. And so I had to learn to eventually accept massive change in my life and, and learn to sort of walk the walk quite literally and figuratively all over again. And um, not easy. And just to fill you in on the the journey in a nutshell. So I was drug-induced, having been airlifted from the scene in Florida, in Orlando, for six months of my life. They put me drug-induced coma to alleviate the pain and suffering. I had renal failure, that's kidney failure. and a machine sort of filtering my blood and sort of taking that job away from the kidneys. I had um, septicemia, so basically full-borne sort of blood poisoning. I had... um, Pneumonia, so basically fluid in the lungs for, because of complications with infection and so on. A wrath and a multitude of physical infections requiring a plethora of antibiotics, some of the strongest antibiotics that doctors can give you, like vancomycin and gentamicin, stuff that they would only give you as a very, very last resort in America. My med bill, to give you an indication, was 27 million US dollars and that was 14 years ago the only reason I mention that is so you understand exactly what the doctors in Orlando actually had to do for me in that six-month period and I had all the specialists the doctors the nurses the specialists sort of interventional radiologists etc physios looking after me 24-7 to pull me back from the brink a man on a knife edge life on a thread and that was who I was, you know, you know, in that in that moment. And then, luckily, six months on, with all that specialist help and intervention, I then got repatriated back to the UK. Um, I went to Chelmsford Burns Unit, which is the central burns unit for the UK, so Broomfield Hospital in Essex, brilliant hospital. And I was under a, a professor there, uh, Professor Diwalski that looked after me with his team, and they deal with burns like large third degree burns. Definition as such is 40% plus third degree because I was a big burn. I remember I was 63%. Mm. That team there looked after me again, round the clock for a couple of months in the drug-induced, uh, again, drug-induced coma. And then I got transferred to Stoke Mandeville Burns Unit because it happened to be closer to my, my family who were able to support me a bit more there because it was only 11 miles from sort of hometown Leighton Buzzard where I grew up. Stoke Mandeville Hospital mm. in in Aylesbury, brilliant Burns Unit. So I was there for about sixteen months, which is a ridiculous amount of time. Still an inpatient. So long and the short of it was I didn't get out of hospital for two years. Wow. And I had I endured um, sixty three um, operations under general anaesthetic over the first six years of my recovery. So everything from skin grafts to you know human donor skin, pig skin, artificial skin. I was like a guinea pig, basically, with the, the uh, uh, burns consultants um, with, between you know, the US and the UK doctors. So very much a, a trial by sort of trial and error, if yeah. you will, to, for them to work with me as an individual to, to get me back because every human individual is indeed that, just very human and individual. So we've all got different DNA in terms of the skin and in, terms, in, in what, what, what might work for you as a patient, may not work for me so because everybody's skin is that little bit different it responds in some cases to some treatment somebody else responds to different treatments hence the sort of trial and error that the the burn surgeons go through and um, yeah a lot of interventions over the years a massive long sort of hospital journey Uh, the physical the psychological um, healing and physical took me about three years Psychological probably took me five years to properly accept it and get over the grief and the anguish and the, the you know the, 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 the sort of acceptance of it all. It was, a, it was a very, very long road before I finally sort of refound my you know, the, a former semblance of myself mm. sort of psychologically and learnt to to kind of slowly and tentatively sort of wag my tail once again, if yeah. you understand
0: so just go, just going back to when you when you saw the flame. Mm. You haven't mentioned anything about that feeling of being on fire. Were you on on fire as the plane was coming down?
1: Yeah, my body was was absolutely absolutely burning. So lower limbs especially, and basically my shins are kind of like quite void. So the the, the big muscle that traverses down your shin, they call that tibial tibialis anterior, mm. um, and that muscle is responsible for when you, especially when you do foot up movement. Mm. Okay, that that, um, that helps to contract the foot and lift the foot, that muscle lifts the foot up. Did, they stripped that muscle out in the States because it was so badly burned. Wow. And the nerve that runs behind it. Did your mind
0: take over? You're, you're fully on fire here. Your mind's going, this is life or death. I need to stay alive. But the feeling of being burnt didn't go through your mind at all. It was like, you, did that pain was not there. It was about survival. Yeah,
1: to be perfectly frank, I wasn't feeling really pain within the cockpit i think mm. that the adrenaline was so up within my body within my mind that i was so busy focused on the moment and it was that f- it was literally that um, sort of fight or flight response literally that i had to think on my feet sort of rationalize it and just in my mind follow the 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 plan of action and the plan that i'd come up with was to to exit the aircraft earlier than the conventional reality of, of running into a full stop, you know, landing, full stop halt yeah. on the runway. Yeah. Because in, if you like, the, the hasty estimate in my mind was telling me, if I do that, it's going to take me a lot longer to, to run in, touch down, roll into a full stop halt, and I'm there, but I'm going to be burning longer in this burning cockpit. This so it was a no-brainer for me to get out earlier. This is it is unbelievable. But coming down, there was a lot mm. of heightened adrenaline, yeah. and that was taking away the focus perhaps away from, you know, thank God. Probably pain receptors. Yeah. So I could feel the warmth and the heat, but I wasn't really in too much pain in the cockpit. But you must have felt you, you feel the warmth and the heat, but if it's come up across your chest and across your face.
0: Yeah. When you landed and you knew you were alive, mm. what was that feeling like?
1: Or were you just did you realize I'll be at the honest, time I was, it, it wasn't a good feeling no. because the reality of hitting the ground and then I rolled around rapidly sort of sausage shape yeah. back and forward in the long Florida grass yeah. to smother the flames because my T-shirt and my sort of thick cotton sort of cargo pants yeah. to, the, to the knee, cargo shorts yeah. to the knee were on fire yeah. from the cockpit. And my literally my shoes and socks were on fire yeah. as well. So I remember rolling back and forward and um, smothered, smothered the flame thinking, right, flame is out. Yeah. But it wasn't. Yeah. My right shoulder was still on fire. Yeah. So I pat that. I pat the right of scalp yeah. because they were, that was Roman candle, that was Roman candle. Yeah. I had to pat that out quickly and the scalp. And then I quickly remembered the aircraft. So I quickly got myself into sort of fetal position yeah. and the aircraft, uh, I got eyes on the aircraft in the distance and the aircraft was about 70 feet away, still airborne, Jeez. might I add. So I caught kind uh, of eyeball, uh, I caught a glimpse on the yeah, aircraft in yeah. the distance and I was looking through sort of slatted fingers but petrified. And sure enough, in the distance, the aircraft was sort of nose heavy, mm. left wing down. And I I physically watched my own aircraft, as it were, crash land. So the prop was about six feet above the ground, about the height of a man. Mm. And I could see it the length of a couple of buses away. And I physically watched that crash and crumple into the noise, ugly crashing noise mm. as she piled into the ground. Mm. And this dirt and dust just flew up into the air and then I just knew instinctively you know just to sort of stand by and I waited there was this pregnant sort of delay this pause Mm. some eight possibly 10 seconds max and all of a sudden boom there was this almighty explosion and I was just outside of the fire radius of that explosion but not outside the shockwave the shockwave went through me and back again, it sucked all of the the, mm. the volume of air from my lungs. And I felt like terribly winded. I, I just couldn't breathe for a moment. I'm trying to get my breath, like really fighting for breath. And then the instinct was then to, 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 to try and crawl away from that, that scene to make more distance between myself and the burning wreckage in yeah. the distance. So I tried desperately to crawl away. And I managed to probably get about a further 15 feet or so sort of leopard crawling through the long grass. But in doing so, the, the sharp grass was m- lacerating my face yeah, further, yeah. my elbows, my knees were yeah. now getting shredded. And then I basically stopped probably 15 feet or so. So I'm probably no more than 90 feet distance from mm-hmm. the burning wreckage. Mm-hmm. I then got onto my knees to look back towards the wreckage, but I'm on my knees yeah. on the ground, looking back. And the, the explosion had sort of simmered down, but she was still burning ferociously. The heat was indescribable. Yeah. And all of a sudden, this, this, it was like a tsunami of pain in that moment right. washed over me. Yeah. And what I would probably suggest there was that the the reason for that was probably because the adrenaline then dropped off yeah. in my body. Yeah. And suddenly the reality kicked in, adrenaline wore off, and I was spent because I'd been crawling in the grass mm. I, in, the, in the action of the moment. I was utterly exhausted. I, I had nothing left to give. And I was just, I thought I was going to, yeah. you know, pass out. The pain was indescribable. It was, was off that the going, Was
0: that going through your mind? This could be the end of me.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. At that moment, categorically, as a human being, I figured and thought, I'm a, I'm gone. I'm, I'm a dead man. Wow. If not now, I'm dead in moments. Because the pain was so indescribable and I was struggling to hold on with every ounce of sort of strength and sinew that I had within me, desperately trying to hold on. And remember, I'd just been burned 63%, no, little did I pain, realise, yeah. third and fourth degree, internal injuries, facial fractures, no. tremendous trauma that the body was up against. The pain was off the charts. And I knew mm-hmm. I was a goner. I mm-hmm. knew it. And I was a goner. What kept, you, what kept you going at that moment? God knows. Was there
0: something in your mind? I've got no idea. Was there family? Was there someone you were looking to no. Can, no,
1: no, I don't think so. I, listen, I won't lie to you. There was three stages psychologically that I can recall. Okay. Phase one the immediate reaction in my mind was the most abject anger as to what had just happened. Yeah. Anger, anger at the whole picture, the scenario, the scene. Holy shit, this has just happened to me. I'm burned you know, pretty much from head to toe as far as I was concerned. Life as I knew it was bloody over. It was simple as that. And that was reality. This wasn't some nightmare that I was just going to wake up from. This was the reality of what just happened. You know, it just manifested itself on the 19th of August, 2007. Jamie Hull screwed. Yeah, End of life as he knew it. Yeah. So even if I did survive, what was the point? when you're in that condition. So the anger was off the charts in my head. It was like, oh my God, probably for like three to five minutes, just the most angry man on the planet. I probably could have taken on 10 men with Mm. the anger Mm. that was running through my mind. Mm. Second phase, the mind switched. Grief, the most abject grief and misery that washed over me because the reality of what just happened again, what can I do about this? Nothing. Nothing. My days are numbered. What can I possibly do? Not a damn thing. I've got no control. My life as I knew it, remember, over. Yeah. I can't turn the clock back. History has just been written. And this was all happening instantly, was it? Just rapidly. I remember wow. this in the mind. Anger, then grief. Yeah. And I was sobbing, tears, like hysterically, you know, from anger to like profanity to cussing the world to just the grief, the tears, the anguish, the... You, you can't even imagine it, you know, because it was utter, total despair, yeah. off the charts. Yeah. Life was over, and I had—I was starting to to rationalise with that, the reality of what just happened, mm. and process it, and that, hence the grief. Mm. Switch three came, and I remember that quite distinctly. And you know, you know, it's—you um, know—I'm not ashamed to say—the third switch in my mind was just resignation, because there was nothing I could do. I knew that I was screwed. So I just suddenly, within the space of 10 minutes or so, I would suggest, that third switch came, and I just thought, what can I do? Mm. Nothing. And I sort of processed it and rationalised it in that respect. You know, friends, family, life, work, colleagues, ambitions, dreams, shattered, gone broken, everything gone, if you can understand. So I just resigned. I knew that I was a man on the out. And so testimony to that is I actually took to make myself a bit more comfortable because I thought, well, this is one journey I'm sure, damn it, not going to need these for. So I carefully, with my sort of crippled and burned hands, I remember taking quite a lot of time and sort of shaking with the the trauma of it all, but trying to uns- undo my laces Un- managed to to get through that, undo the laces on my my my, uh, my sort of hiking shoes, mm. and took my sh- and slid my socks off. My unburned feet it was one of the few parts of me that wasn't damaged. Well, luckily the sort of midsection and sort of genitalia and all that re- didn't get it, yeah. but uh, the, the the feet didn't get damaged either because of the protection of like sort of suede sort of hiking shoes and socks. So I managed to carefully remove all of that down below. And then I placed the laces and tucked it all in neatly, you know, shoes and socks and laces. And, you know, orderly, I wanted that last bit of order right to the very end. Remember, I was that orderly soldier. And I put my shoes and socks, I think, on the right-hand side because I was simply right-hand dominant. So shoes and socks go there. And I lay back. I put my hands across my chest, my arms across, and I lay back in the long Florida grass. And I had to lift my knees up sort of a bit higher, sort of creased my knees up towards my chest because the pain in my sort of torso section was really quite blunt because mm. I'd obviously had all that trauma mm. from the jump. Mm. And little did I realise how bad it was. But um, that was me. I was resigning myself to Jeez. the inevitable. And I laid back and I remember looking up. By now I was starting to go blind because mm. the reaction from the fire on the, um, mm. the burns to the cornea of the eyes. And I just waited and... I grew colder and I grew weaker and I started to to sort of uh, go into hypo mm. so I was getting very cold and I was starting to hyperventilate sort of and it was all very traumatic and I was basically dying. So the the kind of energy was rushing out of me because of the the gravitas of the burns, you know, I'd lost that much skin cover. So the energy and everything was seeping out rapidly. And I was holding on with everything that I had. The pain was hideous. And I just grew colder, weaker, hypothermic. And then American voices on scene all of a sudden. I couldn't see them now because I was blind. A couple of American guys, I remember that much. Helps on its way, buddy. Helps on its way. You you hang in there, man. Helps on its way. We're with you. You know, hold on. We're with you. And this kind of rhetoric on and on and on. And I'm there sort of initially screaming blue murder. Yeah. But I grew quieter and I grew weaker after a period. And um, and and I just waited. And all of a sudden, and I don't know how much time it did probably no more than probably 15 minutes, perhaps not even, perhaps 10 to 15 minutes somewhere. And I was holding on with everything. And all of a sudden, woo, 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 woo. And I thought, well, they're obviously coming for me. The sirens grew louder in the distance and they got closer. And all of a sudden it was like a full scale, emergency response I mean there was fire engines there was ambulance there was police there was a lot of emergency radios going off Mm. I could hear vehicles and big engines and smaller engines around me and the emergency chatter of the paramedics radios next to my ear sort of bleeping away and then dialogue coming over the radio and then within a few minutes they put me into a stretcher they must have hit me with morphine because suddenly life was like oh yeah that's so much better yeah It just sort of washed over me. So I kind of acknowledged that it must have been the morphine. There was some chatter, but not a lot of effort to sort of really converse with me because they could see how traumatized I was. And then there was a short term journey in the back of a, uh, on a stretcher in the back of an ambulance over the rough ground, clearly over the, over the grassy sort of stretch to a a hard standing like an apron uh, at this local municipal sort of aerodrome or small airport. They then put me into the back of a helicopter because I could recognise, you know, the sort of Mm. sliding door and, of course, the unmistakable whoop, 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 and the downdraft. So I knew it was a chopper. I'd had a lot of experience with helicopters. And I got airlifted, and this is where I got lucky. So I I was taken by helicopter some 20, 25 minutes through Orlando airspace to arguably the world's uh, number one trauma facility, and that was Orlando Regional Health Center, probably the best um, burns and trauma facilities uh, in the world, because yeah. they get a lot of practice yeah. in that part of the world. The doctors and the, and the and the specialists, the, the medics, etc. So I was in the best possible hands. So it was almost you know like winning sort of super rollover on the jackpot, mm. getting getting that kind of scenario. And um, you know, as I mentioned, you know the rest is sort of history. You know they they pick me up and uh, and work with me around the clock. But, um, yeah, what a journey. Wow, wow, wow,
0: Jamie. How many operations have you had since that day?
1: So 63 under general. I'm still under uh, laser doctors, believe it or not, with the um, laser departments at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital in London yeah. on the NHS and also the laser doctor Um, at Stoke Mandeville Hospital. Mm. So I bounce between the two still for sort of care. I've also been treated more recently in the last couple of years with um, a back-on-track small charity that um, is supported by Harley Street Skin Clinic. And uh, I've had a lot of sort of uh, laser and CO2 laser and sort of specialist treatments for sort of face, neck, scalp. And hopefully, you know, um, I'd like to think that the good old-fashioned looks I'm getting a bit a, a bit uh, <laughs> smoother looking these days compared to the old days. The, the sort of burns are, are calming down a bit now. Yeah, yeah. 14 years yeah. on, and um, yeah, the good news is I'm 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 happy again. I'm sort of wagging my tail with with this new life. Yeah, call it version 2.0. Yeah, you know, in the new life, and and I'm I'm getting to to sort of you know pick up more or less where I left off, but it's a new life all the same. It's a different life. Yes. And, And I was able to go on and um, have a lot of fantastic opportunities. Um, I did um, three marathons. So having learned to walk, to feed, to write my name and to sort of feed myself all over again in those early years of recovery in the hospital, but to build up and push the boundaries to learn to walk further and sort of improve my strength, push the envelope. Um, eventually I was walking sort of eight miles a day in my home area in Bedfordshire to train myself once again and build up my strength, build up my stamina. What
0: was that feeling like, knowing you've got to train yourself to walk again, to write again, to eat again?
1: Well, it was tough, especially, I mean, it's tough for anybody that goes through like a, a large scale trauma, but, you know, I found it, it was a real kick in the nuts for me mm. because I remember I went from being a badged sort of SF yeah. operative, as it were, yeah. that badged guy. It was a bit like, you know, being a young buck, like a premiership footballer or yeah. something. You've gone from being that guy to, you know, figuratively yeah. and, and for real sort of shot down in flames. Yeah. And I was fighting back from the very lowest ebb, sort of call it ground zero. Mm. And that was a tough thing to accept mm. and to, uh, uh, you know, to embrace change and to have to build myself up from that, that very low ebb and fight back.
0: When when all this happened, when was the point you mentioned earlier about that you you were thinking about ending it?
1: Yeah, so probably about a year and a half in. Okay. So you might think, well it's surprising that it didn't, you know, he didn't sort of cross that mind that mindset, you know, that didn't dawn upon him early on. Why a year and a half? Because truth be told, I kept fighting yeah. for a year and a half. And the analogy I use this when I'm sort of speaking about it is <clears throat> I felt like for all intents and purposes, I felt like a boxer in the ring, mm. if you understand. Mm. But I wasn't like the professional on round twelve, yeah. you know, like a you know a Tyson Fury or you know middleweights or whatever, you know, mm. reaching round round twelve and getting absolutely battered, mm. but you know holding on and tired of the fight. Moreover, and worse still, I, I felt like the boxer that was on round four hundred and four thousand one hundred and twenty-seven in the perpetual ongoing. Never-ending, seemingly never-ending fight of his life and trying to sum up the courage to just keep fighting every single day. And a year and a half on, picture the scene, I'm still in hospital, still massive open areas. Whereabouts? So my shoulder, my back, my scalp. I was in Stoke Mandeville Burns Unit yeah. in Aylesbury. Yeah. Huge open areas of skin. And my body just felt like it wasn't healing. I was probably making some underlying progress, but I couldn't see it. Remember, third-degree burns, so devastating. They take years to heal. Mm. And, of course, lots of surgical interventions to assist that process and get that cover that you require. And very, very long and protracted, laborious, kind of painful journey. And I just was so damn tired of being in the fight. I was so tired of being that perpetual boxer, taking the hits, Getting the pain, you know, more surgery, more yeah. surgery, more general anaesthetic. I just couldn't, didn't feel like I could do it any longer. And a year and a half in, and I came up with the, in my mind, it was the rationale to 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 sort of check out of it. Mm. And I and I considered um, an option of uh, a more dignified sort of exit with the uh, the likes of Dignitas. So in, in my mind, you know, I was prepared to you know to to, to go there and, and do the deed and sort of end it in that sense because it was um a logical, relatively clean and um, sort of non-messy sort of exit from the, the, the sort of the grim life as I knew it, because that's where I was. I was in the very darkest sort of uh, sort of corner, if mm. you will, as a result of what had happened to me in such a dark corner. And I couldn't fight any lo- longer. I, I just needed to go, you know. But I wasn't, you know, for the record there, I wasn't prepared to probably take the irrational uh, sort of messy route out of it, you know. And I would have, do- I would have gone there. I would have hands down gone there. All I needed was a friend. Yeah. I could have called upon you and said, "Look, for Christ's sake, just please help me." Yeah. And if you'd have turned around and said, "Yeah, all right, mate, I get it. Yeah, I'll take you. I'll come and pick you up at like fourteen hundred hours tomorrow, yeah. and we'll crack on, mate. Yeah. And we'll drive down there. Yeah. And I'll help you, and I'll do everything it takes. Yeah. If I'd have had a good friend to sort of hold my hand with the process, I would have gone. Wow. And that's where I was. So the messed up thing really is the fact that I was enthusiastic about the prospect of assisted suicide. Yeah. And that is pretty messed up. Yeah. When I look back. Yeah. But luckily, luckily, don't the get me wrong, with friends, family, yeah. Yeah. but nobody was prepared to step into those shoes. Yes. And that's the important thing. That was the crucial thing really. People stood by me, but not for that. Yeah. And um and believe me, I was talking to friends about it. Believe me I was. Believe me, and probably putting them in a hard position at the time. How and, long?
0: How long do you think this was going on for? In your mind,
1: uh, my lowest ebb that I'm describing here mm. was probably two to three months solid, Jeez. where I was in a very, very dark corner, and I was struggling to really pull myself out and get my head above that parapet because I didn't want it. Yeah, I just didn't want that life. You know, I, I was. I didn't want to try and pull myself out anymore. You know, <laughs> so that's a really tough place to be in in that in the experience you know Jamie I'm not normally lost for words I get it mate it's um I mean it's a tough thing to to talk about in reality but it's probably a tough thing for listeners as well because sincerely who honestly can say that they've been somewhere like that in life where it's been so dark for them mm. because of the you know they're up against so much trauma mm. and they're fighting for their lives and their address is Burns Unit Stoke Mandeville mm. for sixteen months of their life. Mm. That was my full time address. Not many people. It's not a boast as such, but not many people can say that they've been there. And and you know, thank God that not many people can say they've been there. But the fact is, if you are subject to to such a scenario in life, every effort that is required to 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 hold on every day and mm. to keep driving and to keep pushing, you don't want to be there. Mm. No one wants to be in a hospital for 16 months on a burn unit or indeed an inpatient in various hospitals for two years of their life. No. Nobody would want that, especially as a younger adult, right? Yeah. Bearing in mind I got hit when I was 32 years of age. So, you know, you're, you're in the prime of your life. These are your, some of your best years. Mm. And, and, you know, there was a lot going on mentally that I really had to contend with.
0: Did you get any help mentally?
1: It's interesting, I've been asked that question, in fact I was asked that question um, doing a talk very recently and I was offered a lot of help in the sort of psychological sense. I think I spoke to a few psychologists in the hospital but I chose not to sort of uh, take the offer of medication, you know, sort of uh, antidepressant type medication to sort of buoy me up and lift Mm. me up in the mind. Mm. I chose to, to crack on and try and do things as naturally as I could. So don't get me wrong, a lot of analgesia, so you know, the paracetamol, the ibuprofen, the tramadil and the morphine substitutes and the entonox gas in the showers and on and, and various anaesthetics for yeah. surgery and yeah. so on and so forth. But I didn't go down the route of sort of hardcore psychological sort of help medications. Mm. Uh, I, I managed to do that quite naturally, but it was a mission. And then in a nutshell, boom, I could see the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, but the tunnel was long and dark. Yeah. And if you like, I kept bur- burrowing my way through to get to the other side of that tunnel until that light opened up. And then I was getting the hell out of there. And that represented getting the hell out of hospital. And then from the other side of hospital, version 2.0, Jamie Hull, was moving and grafting all over again. You know, I was a man on a mission, albeit slowly, learning to walk and tentatively push the envelope on that new process. And I'm doing this with um, disability and 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 the sort of bilateral foot drop and it, uh, in the early days, I was wearing orthotics for my lower limbs to help that with the walking, mm. like a special support down mm. there on each foot. And, you know, I was still having the dressings at home with the district nurses and and going back and forth to hospital for various outpatient appointments and further surgeries, a lot of further stuff. Had to have some reconstructive work to the torso, uh, reference uh, laparotomies to repair some damage down there and in a, um, um, an incisional hernia. Mm that was a bit of a problem for a while and i had some orthopedics uh, so some bone work on my right elbow and um, and various bits and pieces with all with all of the above so further plastic surgery and but then you eventually were out
0: out of the hospital now. but i was out that so was this the is main version
1: thing. 2.0 2.0 and indeed because i was out i was still i was pushing 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 if you like i used the version 1.0 mindset yep. to drive the version 2.0 New life. Yeah, brilliant. And that was how I kept sort of pushing and developing the new version.
0: Mate, you're an absolute hero. This is is mind-blowing. It really is. When you come out on version 2.0 and you're out of hospital, you've got a spring in your step.
1: It was a bit of a hobble to start with. Yeah, hobble. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Actually, with 65 or 63% skin burns, what was that feeling like that you... for you when you knew that you looked different to the old Jamie?
1: That was tough. Yeah. I mean, that came early, actually, it is a good question because um in Chelmsford, remember I got back from America yes. the first six months. So I can remember when they pretty much roused me from that drug-induced coma after first six months. And they I remember the nurse with the sort of Essex accent. I was a bit confused because she said to me, uh, and I quote, she said, um, got to get you moving now, love. Got to get you moving, Jamie. Got to get you set up in bed. And, and I'm like, what the? What's going on? Who are you? Mm. And there was this dense fog and yeah. I couldn't even really see properly. My eyes were still kind of recovery. Yeah. And through the fog and this kind of foreign accent, because it was I wasn't used to the Essex yeah. nurse, who's she? And it went on and on and on. And I kind of was just laid back in bed, aren't they? are rousing me from drug-induced coma, mm. and this is the first memory. And she said, um, okay, got to get you moving, got to get you set up. And she opened the window, and I remember this rush of cold air, and it was like a rude awakening, literally. Mm. There I was in sort of February, back end of February in Essex, with a wind blowing in on the burns unit. And I was deeply confused about it all, in this fog. And I remember snapping at this nurse, saying more or less like, piss off, leave Mm. me alone. Mm. She kept on, piss off, look, leave it, will you? Go and get my American nurse. Because obviously there was a bit of confusion going on there because of where I'd been. And that's about the only thing I remember from the States, incidentally, was one female American Mm. voice, nurse. And um, I sort of started to get a grip in my mind thinking, Jesus, is this what I think it is? Am I alive? Am I here? And the reality sort of came flooding in. And this nurse, and she said, sorry, my love, you're not in America anymore. So there aren't any American nurses. You're in Essex now on the Central Burns Unit, Chelmsford. You're in Broomsfield Hospital on the Burns Unit. You're with us now, my love, you know. But we've got to start helping you now. You've got to, you've got to listen to what I'm telling you. We've got to get you sat up in bed. She's saying, you think you can do that for me, love? And anyway, let's fast forward sort of like 20 minutes, half an hour or whatever. The next thing I know, I'm having a little cup of water sort of sat up, half sat up in bed. You know, they sort of prop yeah. the bed up. Yeah. And the fog and everything's starting to slowly clear. And the reality of my whole predicament is kicking in. I'm sort of trying to process the whole thing, what's going on. Because up until that point, remember, black know, yeah. for six months. Yeah, know, Maybe yeah. the odd American oh, yeah. v- voice. That is it. Yeah. That's all I remember. And a few bleeps and machines going off in the background but nothing for 6 months just blotted out because of drug induced coma and like i said there i was in Chelmsford now w- waking up in the moment and um just a nightmare mate she 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 brings um a mirror and she said to me right i've brought this in because you know this this accident that you've been through it's a big deal and you've obviously had quite a change of appearance my love you know you've got to have a look at yourself in the mirror i think it's important that we do this today and we do this sort of early on and we do this now so you get you get a look at yourself and i must admit and my face back then it was a picture mate you know mm. it was my head my face was heavily swollen mm. blotchy red mm. i didn't recognize myself mm. compared to the old guy you know mm. um and it was a tough thing for me to to swallow. It really, really was. And of course, you know, from there on in, that acceptance of the, the massive change of appearance at the time, you know, I'd lost hair, I'd lost ears, you know, part of my mouth was deformed. I went on to have a lot of surgery on the mouth and lip mm. because of, you know, that extensive impact yeah. that I described, a lot of plastic surgery. And, you know, even my eyes were really sort of swollen and, I'd had a lot of surgery. Even the eyelids, upper and lower eyelids, were full thickness skin grafts. So I went on to have loads of work done. But I'm talking early days. I I figuratively looked like sort of, you know, the, uh, you know, a sort of, uh, you know, a a sort of distant cousin of the Elephant Man. And that's how it was in my mind. And yeah, I was struggling with that. It took me some time. Um, But that was the least of my worries. Really, the appearance. It was just the the pain and the suffering going on for months, for for years. But um, as I said, long old protracted fight of my Mm. life. Mm. And it put into the shadows, you know, maybe the hardcore of doing various military courses that I described and yada, yada, yada. To be fair, it put all of that in the shadows. The fight that I had to keep up and that pretense, that scrap, all the way through those years of burn surgery and rehabilitation, just beyond the pale really. Mm. And that's the one thing that I'm probably most proud about today in retrospect looking back because I did hold on Mm. and I managed to come through the other side of it. And I think Mm. there's probably, there won't be many people in the world that can say that they've come through that kind of trauma and held on.
0: Unbelievable, Jamie. Unbelievable, mate.
1: Well, I try, if I may sort of humbly sort of account here, just to say that I try to... You know use the voice a little bit now to yeah. share a little bit of the the backstory and the yeah. and the narrative surrounding the burns journey yeah. to hopefully give people a bit of a lift and and give them a bit of a bit of inspiration absolutely
0: and and this let's move on let's move on a bit Tell me about the book that you've written
1: yeah so I was pretty fortunate that um the story was you know kind of getting banded around a lot. I was picked up as a beneficiary for the charity help for heroes yeah and then um by about 2013, after doing sort of you know marathon event, I climbed, um, went off to climb some mountains, and I did Race Across America with Help Heroes yeah. on a bike ride. So you're carrying back
0: straight on the adventure again. Yeah, back different back into, country, straight in the adventure. No one's beating
1: you for sure. But don't forget, different guy, version 2.0, yeah. not quite that same version 1.0. Yeah. The you know the that that guy, there was quite a change. Yeah. You know, in terms of athleticism and yeah. so on. But I was doing what I could and getting back in the saddle, so to speak, yeah. and and pushing and driving as hard as I could, mm. albeit with the new body, the new skin and the new toolkit, as it yeah. were. But I was lucky that um, I got to share my story with being an ambassador for Help for Heroes, with, you know, talking to companies and corporates, to schools and yeah. community groups and Women's Institute or yeah. whatever it might be. Yeah. So lots of weird and wonderful groups, even young farmers and, sort of random yeah <laughs> random sort of uh, groups of 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 the public and it was a bit of a journey and and i felt that um that people were responding to my story quite well yeah and they were they were getting something from that you know they were getting a bit of wisdom or a bit of um perhaps a bit of feel good factor yeah. because i was coming in and i was taking them to on that journey you know talking about what the darkest ebbs were and how i managed to fight back from that and that was somehow helping people in some small way, yeah. hence why I went on to do a bit of speaking. And then um, the idea came to me, and a lot of people were encouraging me, have you ever thought about writing a book? Mm. And I had done, but it just took me a long time. I was probably 10 years on the fence about that, yeah. literally sat on the fence because yeah. it was a it was a big project. And then um, I got picked up with um, – uh, so I found a good ghost to help me, um, and then I um, we worked on a project together for a couple of years and then I was lucky enough to get an agent in the city who then subsequently got me a deal and I got uh, I got picked up with a publisher with uh, Penguin Random House. Brilliant. So, yeah, delighted to say that I got published in um, just May, mid-May this summer of 2021.
0: Congratulations. Mate. Yeah,
1: it took a bit of a time. And the book but, is um, called? Got the book uh, just uh, for the record. So I've got a, just a copy here just to show. And it's called... Um, Life on a Thread, uh, to almost describe, you know, a man on the edge, yeah. uh, given the the journey that I've been on and, and being right on the edge in terms of the incident and the accident. Um, so, yeah, it's a joy for me to finally get that across the finish line with Penguin. And the paperback for Life on a Thread uh, will be out also. That's the hardback version. Yeah. Paperback will be out in... Um, sorry in May of 2022 2022 It's going to be slightly different cover. Yeah. But um same deal. Looks fantastic. And um I'm excited about that. They've got a great new look paperback um that will be um marketed um over the coming months. And I so say that will be released um in um in May 22. So it's yeah. a year on from that the paperback. And um uh, it's great. You know, I've getting some really great critical sort of feedback. Yeah. So I'm I'm get, I've got about a couple of hundred reviews already on Amazon. Brilliant. UK. I've got 100 plus reviews. Amazon US.
0: And where can people find you at the moment, Jamie? How can they get hold of you on social media or?
1: So I've got these uh, verified sort of blue tick accounts on yeah. Facebook and on Instagram as well. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's nice. So they're, they're, people can contact me through those kind of platforms. Mm. And also, I've got a little website which is simply It's a very nice website. Yeah. Thank you. It's uh it's simply Jamie Hull dot yeah and it's got a few sort of images and a little bit of testimony on there and some some sort of speaking reviews if 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 uh, any sort of in, industry sort of uh corporations or companies are interested yeah. in, in, in 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 me as a speaker jamie so, i have
0: thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and you are an absolute hero and what an inspiration you are as a human being cheers dodge appreciate I, that honestly mate Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're a gentleman, James. Cheers. Take care, buddy. Thank you. Cheers, mate.